This morning we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. I had every intention this Sunday of finishing the chapter. And guys, we just can't do it. We're just not going to finish it. There's too much here. Uh, I would have kept you here for an hour and a half, just me talking, and we weren't going to do that. So we're going to split this up. And you can see the title of the sermon is Clean Clothes Part 1. So you can imagine what next week will be. But this morning we're going to stick with uh, just a few verses. And before we read those, I just want to just notice the very first verse, or very first word of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. I think in most every translation, it is therefore. Now, that's an important word in scripture and in writing in general. What, what is that word all about? It should always cause us to look backwards at what the author has just said in order to understand where the author is going to go now. A couple of weeks ago, Jason preached about putting off and putting on from verses 17 through 24 of this chapter in Ephesians 4. And the concept that he talked about, it has this idea of taking off or putting off dirty clothes and putting on new, fresh clothes. And he, he pointed out from the text, really as Paul teaching us, the futility of living life apart from Christ without him. And not just the futility that it is, but what comes about because of that. How that affects not just how we think, but how we live. And if you just kind of want to glance back at just verses 17 and 18 real quick, this is a description of what the old self looks like. And there's a bunch of stuff here that's not real great. Verse 16, they're futile in their thinking. 17, darkened in their understanding, alienated from God, full of ignorance. They have a hard heart. Verse 18, they're callous in how they live. And they readily and regularly participate in impure and immoral things. That is the old self. But look at verse 20. Paul's very clear here. Those things are not to remain. He says, that's not how you learned Christ. If those things describe us, let me say the same thing to you this morning. That's not how you learned Christ. And if you're okay with that kind of stuff, with things from that list... I just want to be bold in in telling you, you've not genuinely been converted. Because that's not how we learned Christ. Instead, look at verse 24. Believers are to put on the new self, one that is characterized by righteousness and holiness. Righteousness and holiness. So, that's what the therefore at the beginning of verse 25 is, is all about. It's causing us to think back about those things, referring back to the contrast between the old self and the new self. And here's the key word that I want us to walk away with from today. It's identity. Identity is defined as the characteristics that determine who a person is. And Paul has already described non-believers in the list that we just talked about. Uh, But he's done it in pretty broad terms. Okay, futile in their minds, okay, yeah, full of ignorance, yeah. But those are pretty broad generalizations in that section. But he, all of that is, is him saying, guys, girls, here is the core problem with the old self. You're apart from Christ. The old self is apart from Christ. It is without Jesus. And so he's explained to believers in Ephesus that that kind of life is anti-Christian. 
living the way that we listed off just a moment ago, living that way regularly is anti-Christian and it's not what they learned. It's not what you learned about being a follower of Christ. To live that way without remorse, without change is evidence that you've never really heard the gospel. That's what Paul says. It's evidence that you've not really heard now in our text this week, today, and next Sunday. Paul is going to start to flesh out and get really super practical. I don't have a gauge for the practicality of a sermon, but this week and next week are going to be very practical. So if, if you wrestle with some of the things that we've, we're going to talk about, if you can kind of glance through the text, I'd encourage you to be here and to listen. This is going to be very practical because Paul just starts laying this stuff out. What does it look like without Christ? And then what does it look like with Christ? Just in the, the flow, the ebb and flow of everyday life. Paul's getting ready to explain to believers that there's a difference for how we live based on a new identity. There is a difference. So before I have John, John David's going to come up and read our text for us this morning. But before he does that, I want us just to, to take a breath and to pause and have just a moment for self-evaluation. This is always a real fun thing to do, right? No. But it's something that a lot of us do this time of year anyway, isn't it? I'm talking about New Year's and resolutions and all of that stuff. I'm not a big guy on the resolutions, but if that's something that you are interested in, I want you to take just a moment and evaluate yourself. You've already thought about, I'm sure, everything that's happened in 2019. There's been a lot of good stuff. There's been some bad stuff, some hard stuff. There's, there's some stuff that kind of the jury's still out on. You're not quite sure if things are going to work out. But I hope that you'll not just evaluate the events of the year, but also what happens spiritually for you in 2019. I've heard it said before that if you aren't moving forward in your relationship with God, you're standing still. And if you're standing still, you're actually moving backwards. Brother Lee, years ago, said it this way. He said, the Christian life is never static. Static means being still, not moving. The Christian life is always moving one way or the other. And as Christians, we are people who are called out from the world by God himself. Brothers and sisters, we are swimming against the flow. We are going against the flow. And for the most part, I bet almost all of you feel that like every day. Many of you work in an environment, in fact, Jason mentioned this in his sermon a couple weeks ago, he works in an environment where godly values and virtues are not encouraged at all. And they're not modeled very well by coworkers and bosses either. When you bring up the things of God, you feel the pushback. You feel the tension sometimes. Even when you're at home with families, we feel the challenges that come with following Christ, don't we? Because it's easier to just fly off the handle and say things to our families or our co-workers that we have to then apologize for later than to actually restrain ourselves in the moment and exercise self-control. Let me encourage you today. God has you in the job that he wants you in. God has you in the home that he wants you in. Now, I don't mean that you can never leave the job that you're in. I'm not saying you can't look for a different position or try to change the environment of your home. What I mean is this. Unless your job causes you to enter into some kind of unbiblical conduct, it's no mistake that you work at the place where you work. 
certainly no mistake that you're in the family that you're in. If you go out to work every day with the understanding that God is sending you there, I would imagine that it would change your whole outlook on it. It's not just the daily grind. God has a mission for you. God is sending you to your place of work. God is sending you into your families. Are are there going to be difficult people that you have to deal with? Bosses, coworkers, sometimes even family members? Yeah, of course. That's going to be the case no matter what. But if we believe in the sovereignty of God over us and over our place of work, then we know it's not an accident or surprise that God has us where he does. He's got us there for a reason. And this same thing is true if you work in the home or if your job is caring for your family. It's not an accident or a surprise to God that you are there. We find out in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verse 21, that it's God who removes kings and it's God who sets kings up on their respective thrones. So if he does that for nations, the ruling of nations, I think he can handle our families and how he sends us into the workplace. So here's the encouragement after all of that. Don't stop swimming against the current wherever you spend your day. Don't stop swimming against the current. The more that we live out this new identity in Christ, the more he is seen and honored wherever we are, day in and day out. And I think this is what we want. I know all of you, and I think most of us would want Christ to be honored in where we work and in how we work, by our conduct in the workplace, by our conduct in our home. You want to reflect him well where you are. But the reality is, I think we feel this too. The reality is if we're not looking actively for ways to submit to God more and more, brother and sister, you will get carried along with the flow of everybody else. The Christian life is a life of consistent, willful submission. And those are three words that we don't really have a good grasp on in our culture. And I'm including myself in that group. But the Christian life is a life of consistent, willful submission. It's consistent because being lax in this will cause us to move away from God in our fellowship. It's willful because it takes a conscious act of our will to do this day in and day out. And it's submissive because, brothers and sisters, we don't live for ourselves. We live for the Lord. We are new creations in Christ and we have minds that are being renewed As verse 23 here says, and because of these things, we are empowered to live out the new identity that we have in Christ. The power for change comes from the newness of life that we experience in a relationship with God. We need new hearts. We need new desires. We need new minds and a new way of thinking. We need new power. And those are the exact things that we get when we come to Jesus. So, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25 through 27 for us, and then we'll pray. Let's pray together. God, as as we seek to honor you in our conduct and in how we reflect Christ, forgive our failings. Help us to submit to you and to your will more and more every day. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for your grace in this. Uh, We pray that you would help us also to give grace to others as we seek to do this better together. We thank you for the life and the mind of Christ that you have promised is within every believer. 
We thank you that you've won the battle against sin so that we would have hope and the ability to stand against the devil and his schemes now and every day. As we study your word, Lord, help us to understand and then apply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we dig into too many of the details this morning, I just want to share some really extremely helpful things that came out of my commentary study this week. And I know you think, okay, commentaries are boring and all of that sort of thing. They really aren't if you get into it, but there's three things that I want to just point out from the text based on what I had to study this this week. The first one is, is very short. This practical encouragement that we're about to see from Paul is relational. It has to do with the one anothering that Ephesians four, that Ephesians, really the whole book is, is so focused on. Our union with Christ should change the way that we live in community with one another. According to the Bible, our sin affects others negatively, just as our righteousness blesses other people positively. Our actions have an effect on the people around us. Number two, the second thing, is notice how as we go through this, you'll see there's a negative action stated first and then a positive action listed afterwards. Because holiness and, and seeking after righteousness is not just about saying no to sin. It's about saying yes to God. Just like fasting is not just about saying no to food. It's about saying yes to more of God. There's a point to it more than just not eating. There's a point to pursuing holiness more than just not doing bad stuff. It's doing the right thing. And the third thing, there is a theological reason given for why we're supposed to live like Paul describes. Why we live like this. Let me just give you an example. Paul doesn't just say, hey, put away lying. He relates it to the doctrine of the church. He says, put away lying because we're members one of another. He doesn't just say, be angry and do not sin. He relates it to a belief in the devil himself. He commands the church to no longer steal. And he follows that by speaking of honest work and caring for those in need. And we'll see these things next week. And he goes on and he talks about how we speak and it relating to grieving the spirit. So there is a theological reason for why he tells us to live this way. So what does this all mean? Jason mentioned it with the kids. It means that our practice and our theology are tied together. Christians should not only live differently from unbelievers, but they should also live differently for different reasons. Let me say that again. Christians should not only live differently from unbelievers, but they should live differently for different reasons. Look at verse 25. We're told here, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. We do this not just because we're supposed to, to speak the truth in order to be good little Christian boys and girls, but as I already mentioned, because our lies have a profound effect on the people around us. Think about what Paul has already said. He says every member is connected. Think back to what you know of First Corinthians chapter 12. He said, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Right? It's that section where he's talking about the body. Think about this. If my eye says to my hand, that stove isn't hot, and my hand touches the stove anyway, what will happen? I will get burned. 
And when you injure one part of your body, it affects your whole body, doesn't it? You just can't get comfortable. It, it just it affects everything. Because we're united together, lies, false words hurt everyone. In fact, if we glance back through just this chapter alone, verses 15, 21, 24, Paul has already talked about truth three times. He's talked about truth. I think this should make it clear that God wants his people to be truth tellers. God wants his people to be truth tellers. The Bible says that God hates lying. You can look this up, but Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 says that God hates a lying tongue. Verse 19 says a false witness who breathes out lies is an abomination to him. Those are hard words, guys. Those are not just like, yeah, it's okay if you do this every once in a while. Those are hard things that God says about lying and about people who breathe out lies. John chapter 8, verse 44 describes Satan himself as a liar and the father of lies. So this helps us understand this concept a little bit more. Let me just boil it down this way. When you tell the truth, you're imitating God. When you tell a lie, you're imitating the devil. Is that easy enough for us to understand? When you tell a truth, you're reflecting God. When you lie, you're reflecting Satan. Lies weaken the body, but truth strengthens it. We've already been told, look at back at chapter 4, verse 15. We've already been told a little bit about speaking the truth. We're told to do it in love. So we don't have to be cruel in how we speak the truth to people. We're not supposed to be, but I think we should be straightforward. Because sometimes... I would say maybe oftentimes, the more that we try to sugarcoat things and make it palatable, the further away from truth we actually get. Sometimes speaking the truth in love involves saying things that the other person doesn't want to hear. If they're going to be upset about something, we need to make sure that they're upset about the truth that we've shared, not about the way that we've shared it. There is a difference there. Now, surely we have all got room to grow in this area, myself included. But I want us to remember too, just because someone might speak truth to you in a not ideal way, maybe it's not the best way that they've said it to you, just because it's done in a way that isn't ideal and perfect doesn't mean that what they're saying isn't true. Now, it takes Christian maturity to evaluate the difference. But we have to do that. We have to work at that. We have to speak truth to one another because, as Paul says, we are members of one another. We are tied together. And so we'll condense this whole one down to saying that we need to replace lying with truth-telling. That's a practical application that Paul brings out. We need to replace lying with truth-telling. Look at verses 26 and 27 now. Now this is a, a restating of a verse in the book of Psalms. So I'm going to encourage you to turn to the book of Psalms with me. Psalm 4 verses 4 and 5. Be angry and do not sin. We've heard that part before, most of us. But this next part might be new. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. 
This is all, these things are all connected here. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So here's the solution to anger. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Maybe not quite exactly what we thought would be said there. I just find it really interesting that godly anger, or we've heard it called righteous indignation maybe, as described in this verse in Psalm 4, has a two-part solution and neither one of them have to do with the other person. Look at this with me. The first part of this solution is an outward action. It's taken by the angry person, the person that is upset. It's the outward action and he says, offer right sacrifices. That's what we do. We offer right sacrifices. This means that we don't plot our revenge. That means we don't imagine in our mind what we're going to say to that person the next time we see him to really put him in their place. It means that we don't impose our will on the person that we're angry with. None of that is here. Like I said, this action has nothing to do with the other person at all. It's just you and your response. Offer right sacrifices. Take it before the Lord and give it to Him. Do what you're supposed to do spiritually when you're angry. Offer right sacrifices. In your anger, take it to God. Don't take it out on the other person. The second thing, second part of the solution here, number two, is an inward action also taken by the person that's upset and angry. Second part of the solution is put your trust in the Lord. We've seen movies are being made all the time, TV shows are being made all the time that capture the extent that some people will go in order to avenge their anger, in order to have an outlet for how they feel, how angry they are. You could see, and and these oftentimes, unfortunately, are actually motivated by actual stories of people, but people spend years of their lives training to just repay the person that hurt them. People spend loads of money to plot their revenge. People devote sometimes the rest of their lives after the event to give full vent to their anger. It filters down the same way to you and me to real everyday people. But this is not the path of the believer. This is not how we learned Christ. Look back at Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. Phrase in here that we didn't talk about yet. It says, be silent. That's, That's not our first instinct when we're angry, is it? It's not. I don't think anyone. But I think it directly relates to what we have already talked about. Put your trust in the Lord. Be silent. Lay down in your bed. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. Doesn't he, he's not even talking about the other person in the equation here. He's talking about you and your response. Your response in any situation is your responsibility. Someone else doesn't make you do something. You have the choice. And as Christians, we're called to live differently. Now, I will just say, there are times when Christians should feel anger. There are things that we should get upset and angry about. When sin is being perpetrated and repeated, Christians cannot be indifferent to it any more than God can be indifferent to it. And here's a hint, he's not at all. He's not indifferent to our sin. This is not an exact quote, but you've heard it said that evil will prevail if Christians do nothing. 
If we're going to be angry, though, our anger should look like Jesus's anger, right? Well, how what was his anger about? What did he get angry about? Was it because someone treated him unfairly? No. Was it because someone took his rights away? No. Surely it was because he was nailed to a cross unjustly. No. It was none of those things. Because Jesus' anger wasn't selfish anger. It wasn't focused on him. Jesus' anger was godly anger. There's a couple of situations that probably jump to your mind about Jesus getting angry. In Mark 11, 15, he goes into the temple and he sees people are abusing the sacrificial system and he starts flipping tables over. Uh, he was angry, righteous indignation, but it wasn't because someone had offended him. It was because someone was desecrating the house of God. In Mark chapter 3, we see that he was angry. He, he healed a man and the religious leaders looked on and they were angry at Jesus. They were upset. And Jesus looked at them and he was angry. He was perturbed at them because they didn't care about this man at all. They were just trying to trap him and defame him. And so we see that Jesus' Jesus' anger was almost always mixed with grief. God's name was being sullied. The ways of the world had crept into the church and they didn't know what true worship was and so Jesus needed to set them straight. People's hearts were so hard that they cared more about trapping Jesus than a man being healed. Christians, we should be grieved and angered over sin, but we should always respond appropriately to these things. But anger isn't easily controlled. It's not even easily identified sometimes. It seems from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 though, that it is possible to be angry and not to sin. So here are Paul's three reminders about anger. So if this is something that you've struggled with or Maybe you don't even think that you struggle with. We all deal with anger to some degree. And this is Paul's three reminders about anger. This is hopefully to help us appropriately deal with our anger. He gives us three things to think about. Number one, very simple, do not sin. So let me, let me say it this way. If your anger causes you to throw a fit or to seek revenge or to dishonor the name of God, it is not righteous anger. It is selfish anger. And you are wrong to do it. It is a sin for you to do that. The second thing, the second reminder is do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let anger fester. Resolve it quickly. That doesn't mean punish the other person quickly. That means give it to the Lord. Deal with it appropriately quickly. Even anger over sin, even right anger, if we don't deal with it, can lead to bitterness quickly. If there are things in your life that happened months or years or even decades ago that still make you angry when you think about them, you need to, to be reminded to put your trust in the Lord this morning. And you need to resolve that issue biblically. The third thing, the third reminder here from Paul is to give no opportunity for the devil. I don't think it's a coincidence or an accident that anger is tied with opportunities for the devil here because it's a big deal. Give no opportunity for the devil. This tells me that the devil loves it when people, especially Christians, hold on to their anger. The devil loves it. Anger 
quickly turns into bitterness. You know what the Bible says about bitterness? The effects of it? It's not good. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but bitterness makes the bones rot. Acts 8.22 and 23 Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Bitterness is a poison that rots our bones, the Bible says. And bitterness begins quickly to affect every part of our life. Even things that weren't connected to the initial event that we're angry about start to get affected by bitterness if it's not been not put in its place when we don't seek reconciliation quickly satan seizes the opportunity to make us bitter and divisive and sometimes even violent in our anger author joanna weaver says this you may have heard it before she says bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die doesn't make a lot of sense And I'll say it again, this is not the way we learned Christ. Anger is not the way that we learned Christ. So we need to replace selfish anger with godly anger. You may have heard the expression, the clothes make the man. Now, in some ways, that's that's true, not usually physically, because we're also told you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. Sometimes these things are confusing, aren't they? But spiritually, I think... That this is true. The clothes make the man. See, because when you become a Christian, you're washed clean and you're given a new set of clothes. A couple weeks ago when Jason preached, I talked with the kids and I I described to them as I worked in the hot sun every day sealing asphalt, my clothes would get stinky and dirty. And if I went home and took a shower and got clean, it would be ridiculous, silly and foolish to go and put those dirty clothes that I wore all day right back on. No one would do that. That would be silly. And Paul uses the idea of put off and put on, take off and put on. He uses this idea all the time in his writings. Just to mention a few, Romans 13, Colossians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3. He talks about putting off the old self and putting on the new. In some early baptism traditions, the church would give the person who's baptized a new garment probably a white garment to signify this new set of of clean clothes that we have after we've been saved, washed by the blood of the Lamb. Because of who we are in Christ, we must now live differently. We have to. Today, we looked at what Paul had to say about truth-telling and about righteous anger. Next week, we're going to look at what Paul says about honest work and giving. We're going to look at using our words to build up instead of tear down. And we're also going to look at kindness and forgiveness. These things, all that we talked about so far, are practical applications of how Christians are supposed to live out their faith day by day. If you have a habit of telling lies, repent. That's not how you learned Christ. If you have a habit of being angry, repent. It is not how you learned Christ. That is not how a Christian should be described. But Putting on new habits, it's not always easy, is it? Putting on new habits must mean that we put off old habits. So we have to replace sinful habits with holy habits. 
Are you ready to do that? We're about to start a brand new year, 2020. Are you ready to be marked by holy habits in 2020? Are you content to remain being marked by selfish habits, sinful habits? Now, the joy of this, the beauty in this is that God has not left this all alone just to figure this out on our own. He's not just said, hey, here are the, here are the rules. Now do it, figure it out, make it happen. It's not what he's done. If he has called you to himself, if he has saved you, he has put the spirit inside of you. And not only that, he has put you inside the church. You see that? He has sealed us multiple times within his care. But we buck against those things sometimes. I like how one of the commentators I was reading this week puts it. Tony Merida says this. I hope it helps us understand this concept a little bit better as we close. When soldiers, firemen, policemen, or astronauts put on their distinct uniforms, they're taking on new responsibilities corresponding to their new identity. So it is with the Christian. When we put on Christ, we receive a new spiritual identity and new corresponding responsibilities. Having put off the corrupt garment of the old self and put on the new garment, we must live in light of our new identity. Christian, I hope that you will eagerly and with joy put on the new self, put on the new clothes every day. If you're here and you're without Christ, my simple encouragement and challenge for you is to put on Christ today. The maker of the universe has extended his hand of salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He's calling you to reach up and take it today. Take his hand. If you're a Christian, you have hope of not being marked by anger and lying and bitterness and stealing and corrupt talk because of Christ in you. And so my prayer for our church in the new year, and my prayer for you as God's people would be that we together are more and more devoted to living out our new identity that we have in Christ. And we live it out by his power and we live it out for his glory. Amen. Let's pray together. God, I can't do this on my own. My friends here, they can't do this on their own. And we were never really supposed to. Because we're always supposed to put our trust in you, as Psalms 4 said. And so, Lord, today, if we struggle with lying, if we struggle with anger, God, I pray that we would repent of those things. And that might mean a drastic change in our walk. But, Lord, if we're going to walk worthy of the calling for which we have been called, like you said earlier in Ephesians, Lord, this is what we need to do. We need to learn Christ. Because lying and anger are not the way that we have learned Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be open to people's rebukes of that in us, that I would be open to people's rebukes of that in me. And if that is true of me, Lord, that you would grant me and my brothers and sisters repentance in this so that our lives are not marked by these things. They're not marked by the old nature, the old self, but Lord, they'd be marked by the new clothes that we have put on in Christ. His righteousness and not our own feeble attempts. 
God, as we seek to apply these things now as, as, we, as we go this week into those hard places, God, give us grace and help us to have grace with one another. In your name we pray. Amen.